Hello and welcome to 2050 Miles of Poetry with me, Lee. And me, Charlie, from London. And from Helsinki. How are you? How are you? Oh, <laughs> I think we're both in very good spirits today. Is the weather good there? It is absolutely gorgeous, yeah. I went for a cycle ride in the forest yesterday and uh, just spent a bit of time sat on a rock pondering my navel. Oh, wow, very nice, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. What about you? Have you made it out on your walk? Um, I have been out for a lovely lunchtime walk where I've looked over the Thames at full tide, which has been beautiful. All the light refra- refracting across it. It's quite stunning, oh, wow. like vast, very spacious, which is quite lovely. But I've got something uh, very enjoyable to uh, to tell you because um, I did something quite uh, fun at the end of my walk. I posted okay. some postcards and um, really? I want to show these to you because these are quite interesting so well I'm guessing I can expect one though <laughs> you can expect one so what does oh, that really? say there it says Marseille oh brilliant and let's see if you can guess <laughs> let's see if you can guess who this is oh Bob Cobbing Monet, <laughs> Monet. <laughs> nice try nice try <laughs> and let's see if you can guess where this is Paris very good very good so um yeah my flats you know I keep finding such wonderful things I found this map oh you literally (laughs) just found them in your flat (laughs) (laughs) I thought you meant you found them on your walk somewhere in a shop (laughs) no 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 so I found them in my flats and my postcards that I wrote last summer but completely modern life took over and I never sent them and oh. um, so you and a couple of other friends can expect um, a throwback. Oh, amazing. <laughs> a postcard from my summer holiday last year, you know. Well, that's pretty cool. That would be like, um, it's kind of like a movie plot, <laughs> but also so amazing during this lockdown thing to get a little holiday snippet. Exactly, exactly. Lovely. Well, I have actually just found this postcard hanging around my flat, so... Maybe I'll have to send that to you and I can pretend that I've been on holiday. Very cool. And um, so tell me about this postcard that I'm looking at then. So it's uh, different Finnish lakes and little drawings of Finnish lakes with their... That's a bit more disappointing though because I might end up... You know, that's somewhere I could conceivably actually go on holiday, isn't it? Some lakes in Finland. Whereas yours are a bit more exotic. Well, I still think it's going to be quite wonderful. It's exotic to me, Lee. <laughs> that's true, that's true. Exactly. There was, a, there was an interesting shaped lake that looked like sort of somebody um, somebody sitting down. Is that just me? Like top right? <laughs> uh, this one? Yeah. Lake of God. Lake of God. Yeah, that, that's an interesting, uh, yeah, interesting looking lake. There you go. <laughs> Amazing. And Lee, your hair looks quite something. <laughs> Has, has, have you done something to it since our last recording? Yeah, so I've given myself a little bit of a lockdown haircut. Is, is this which... week seven? It's really, was it just too much? Is it the hot weather? Oh, it was just too much, yeah. On my <laughs> cycle ride, I just couldn't concentrate with all that hair flapping around oh, the no. tops of my ears. <laughs> Flowing in <Yeah>. the wind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't want to feel too free. I want to keep a kind of semblance of uh, 
being locked up. Oh yeah, I hear you, I hear you. And you, and you look very chilled out, you know, it's quite the summertime vibes with the, what time is it in Helsinki? I think we're recording at uh, early 20. evening. 5, 5.15, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've, you've got something nice and refreshing, I see. How jealous I am. Yeah, I've got a beer here, which is nice. <laughs> Lovely. Well, I haven't done too much preparation for this podcast, so I'm hoping, hoping this will loosen me up to actually say something <laughs> well um well hopefully my poems will help as well so uh, so staying with this positive holiday vibe um i would like to read you some poems from sylvia plath's co- collected poems and um i'm not really going to start with much about her life because i think that can sometimes shroud some of her earlier work um okay. so i i just want to start with the poems and then what you think of them Southern Sunrise Colour of lemon, mango, peach These storybook villas Still dream behind Shutters, their balconies Fine as hand, made lace Or a leaf and flower pen sketch Tilting with the winds On arrowy stems Pineapple barked A green crescent of palms Sends up its forked firework of fronds a quartz clear dawn inch by bright inch gilds all our avenue and out of the blue drench of angels bay rises the round red watermelon sun that just sounded so luscious to me lee what do you think yeah i really like it it really reminds me of uh sort of those hazy mediterranean summers or something um, the weather's a bit warmer than it is for us here, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or I'm absolutely boiling in my flat, but <laughs> yeah, um, it kind of reminded me of that movie, "Call Me by Your Name." Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of that. feeling, like summer, delicious kind of fruit. slightly, yeah, delicious fruit, sort of sepia toned, or kind of lens flared, sort of summer images. Uh, I like that line about the fronded firework of the green crescent palms. Yeah, it was a wonderful That's... line, wasn't it? Very, yeah, very really like nice. happy and full of joy and delight. And are you a fan of watermelons and melons? Oh, yeah, I love them. You love them. Okay, well, on that note, I've got another one about melons for you. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Fiesta melons. In Benidorm, there are melons, whole donkey carts full of innumerable melons ovals and balls bright green and thumpable laced over with stripes of turtle dark green choose an egg shape a world shape bowl one homeward to taste in the white hot noon cream smooth honeydews pink pulped whoppers bump rinded cantaloupes with orange cores each wedge wears a studding of blanched seeds or black seeds to strew like confetti under the feet of this market of melon-eating fiesta-goers. Oh, it just makes me want to sort of, you know, be outside with many other people. Uh, yeah. yeah, it makes me want to be on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> I like that line of the studding of the seeds and then kind of as confetti and things like that. Me too. It's very visual, I thought, sort of very descriptive. Yeah. And also um, there's quite like a, a beat to her words, like... Uh, mm. It's, it's very enjoyable to speak. Each wedge wears a studding of blanched seeds or black seeds. There's just, I think, sort of, uh, she uses language 
I don't know how you describe this lead, sort of speed up the poem in parts with shorter mm. words. How would you describe that using your English literature? <laughs> I want to make it clear to listeners that I only studied English literature at A-level, which was like 12 years ago, so, or 13 years ago, so I'm no expert at all. But um, let's call that... <laughs> um, uh, I don't know, having a nice tempo. <laughs> great tempo, great tempo. <laughs> and um, um, I'd love to take you from Benidorm somewhere else. Um, are you happy to go there with me, Lee? I would really, really, really like to go. There. Okay, super. Is it Paris? <laughs> it's not Paris. Um, oh. Well, actually, I just want to say one more thing. So, um, interestingly, um, I'll talk more a little bit about Sylvia Plath's life later. Um but she was born in 1932 in Boston, Massachusetts. And then she moved over to um, Cambridge on a Fulbright scholarship. Um, wow. And she met Ted Hughes, her future husband, um, at a party in Cambridge, um, where they fell in love at first sight and married four months later, very short. Oh, my God. And that That's was um, on February the 25th, 1956, that she met Ted um okay. so 1956 is when both those two poems were written so i think that's when they're on their honeymoon and i think that that sort of speaks of really? like yeah the joy and delight of uh of the poems i think they're traveling i think they're sort of um, yeah yeah honeymooning it's exciting new love kind of thing exactly but that's almost really nice that they're not explicitly about love then yeah but they do have that vibrant joyous kind of atmosphere so I don't know that much about Sylvia Plath, but she was American. She was American, exactly, yeah. So okay. Massachusetts. Um, and yeah, well, let me tell you a little bit more about her later, because, um, okay. yeah, I think she had quite an interesting but short life. Um, mm. And I think, as I said before, that she is quite misunderstood. So I'm choosing to read some positive, joyous poems of hers from yeah. this wonderful, thick, uh, blue book of collected poems yeah that's a really nice looking book <laughs> there which publisher is that is that Faber and Faber as well yes it's our favorites <laughs> yeah they're all so good looking aren't they, they are very good looking what is it what is that font Lee I'm gonna say Garamond or something like yeah, that something like that it's a kind of serif font but quite a contemporary looking one yeah very beautiful and just the colors are always just very enjoyable it reminds me of the blue books by the um, publisher Fitzcarraldo editions. Yes, yes. But it's not quite that deep blue, but um, it is still very enjoyable. And actually, this book has a really interesting story in that um, one sunny day uh, a couple of years ago, I actually bought this um, off, I think, an old English literature student um, in Primrose Hill. Where, really? How strange. Exactly, where Sylvia Plath once lived. Um so that's very yeah, because the yeah I've seen that house. That's cool. Exactly, exactly. So let me read you Blackberrying, um, which was written in September nineteen sixty one. Okay. Blackberrying. Nobody in the lane, and nothing, nothing but blackberries, blackberries on either side, though on the right mainly, a blackberry alley going down in hooks, and a sea. Somewhere at the end of it, heaving, blackberries, big as the ball of my thumb and dumb as eyes, ebon in the hedges, fat, with blue-red juices, these they squander on my fingers, 
I had not asked for such a blood sisterhood. They must love me. They accommodate themselves to my milk bottle, flattening their sides. Overhead go the choffs in black, cacophonous flocks, bits of burnt paper wheeling in a blown sky. Theirs is the only voice, protesting, protesting. I do not think the sea will appear at all. The high green meadows are glowing, as if lit from within. I come to one bush of berries, so ripe it is a bush of flies, hanging their blue-green bellies and the wing panes in a Chinese screen. The honey-fest of the berries has stunned them. They believe in heaven. One more hook and the berries and bushes end. The only thing to come now is the sea. From between two hills a sudden wind funnels at me, slapping its phantom laundry in my face. These hills are too green and sweet to have tasted salt. I follow the sheep path between them. A last hook brings me to the hill's northern face, and the face is orange rock that looks out on nothing, nothing but a great space of white and pewter lights and a din like silversmiths beating and beating an intractable metal. Hmm. I really, really liked that one. Why did you like it, I wonder? Well, I liked it because I was comparing it to the poem that I'm about to read. Um, and I was kind of thinking of the similarities between the two and also the differences. And I think I prefer the Sylvia Plath one. But the one that I want to read is by Seamus Heaney. And it's called Blackberry Picking. And this is because I knew Charlie was going to read a poem about blackberries, but I didn't know what it was and I hadn't heard it yet. Oh, really so, exciting. Yeah, and when, when you said that you were going to read something about blackberry picking, you used those two words and instantly my mind was taken back to my GCSE English. And I remember that we had these um, anthology books uh, of poems that we were supposed to study. Supposed and to. Some... <laughs> yeah, exactly. And something deep down kind of stirred, and I remembered this blackberry picking by Seamus Heaney in the corner of the page. I remember it was low on the kind of left-hand page of one of them. That's incredible and... that you can still remember that. <laughs> yeah, isn't that weird? Um, and I wanted to read it because I thought it would be interesting to see if, if we think that this is a kind of appropriate poem for teenagers to read, or if this is what the government has chosen for teenagers to read, do we think that this was the right choice kind of thing? Brilliant. And also just revisit it. So here we go. Blackberry Picking by Seamus Heaney. Late August, given heavy rain and sun, for a full week the blackberries would ripen. At first, just one, a glossy purple clot, among others, red, green, hard as a knot. You ate that first one, and its flesh was sweet, like thickened wine, summer's blood was in it, leaving stains upon the tongue and lust for picking. Then red ones, inked up, and that hunger, sent us out with milk cans, pea tins, jam pots, where briars scratched and wet grass bleached our boots, round hayfields, cornfields, and potato drills, we trekked and picked until the cans were full, until the tinkling bottom had been covered. With green ones, and on top, 
big dark blobs burned like a plate of eyes. Our hands were peppered with thorn pricks, our palms sticky as bluebeds. We hoarded the fresh berries in the byre, but when the bath was filled we found a fur, a rat grey fungus glutting on our cash. The juice was stinking too. Once off the bush, the fruit fermented, the sweet flesh would turn sour. I always felt like crying. It wasn't fair that all the lovely canfuls smelt of rot. Each year I hoped they'd keep, but knew they would not. And that's from 1966, so five years after the Sylvia Plath poem that you read. Mm, Fascinating. Yeah, and it's from Heaney's first collection, Death of a Naturalist. And do you remember enjoying that when you were um, the tender age of 16? Maybe 14 or 15 or 16, yeah. So very tender Um, in age. (laughs) Yeah, very, very tender. The softest age. (laughs) Um, I don't know if enjoy is the right word. We did used to go blackberry picking because I grew up in Somerset in the countryside and we would go blackberry picking every year. So I guess I was ripe for relating to it. I enjoy that ripeness that you described. I know, that was, uh, (laughs) yeah. I would say no pun intended, but I did intend it. (laughs) Um, But I think that perhaps it's not the best poem to try and catch teenagers' attention, especially when you think the majority of teenagers are more interested in um, girls and trying to drink rather than blackberry picking. What do you think? I've always liked Blackberry. I don't know. I think there's something super nostalgic about it because actually, well, maybe maybe now I'm sort of in my 30s. Oh, oh my. I um, I really enjoy the nostalgia of it. And I think back to when I last did it properly and probably the last time when I had so much time on my hands before this strange pandemic was mm. back in my youth when I would be spending summers picking punnets of strawberries and blackberries and things. Yeah. I definitely agree with you now reading it as a kind of 31 year old that it's very nostalgic and um, the themes are quite relevant to, you know, people approaching middle age. (laughs) (laughs) With our slow lives. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, I've read that um, it's split into two stanzas and basically the first one is about the kind of hope of life, which is all this, you know, picking the berries and it's all very hopeful and... um, enjoying eating the first one and its uh, sweet flesh and then the second stanza is about hoarding the berries and that they all kind of gradually go rotten and infected and uh, it's apparently it's about kind of like wasted youth and um, futility of growing older oh god (laughs) (laughs) which is quite depressing Um, and I don't I think yeah I can appreciate that now but I do think if the the job of um, reading poems at school is to um, make something that the teenagers can relate to and that might enliven a kind of passion in them. I'm not sure that this is the kind of poem that will necessarily do that. What do you think? I, I, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Well, uh, perhaps does Heaney have any other slightly more explicit poems which would satisfy that desire in you know a young teenager well (laughs) i don't know i'm not an expert but (laughs) something to get those teenagers that you know some of our teenage listeners lee wants to get your heart racing 
prepare yourself. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> okay, yeah, this one is guaranteed to get the heart racing of any listener. It's called digging. <laughs> <laughs> Between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests, snug as a gun. Under my window, a clean rasping sound. When the spade sinks into gravelly ground, my father digging, I look down. Till his straining rump among the flower beds bends low, comes up twenty years away, stooping in rhythm through potato drills, where he was digging. The coarse boot nestles on the lug, the shaft against the inside knee was levered firmly. He rooted out tall tops, buried the bright edge deep to scatter new potatoes that we picked, loving their cool hardness in our hands. By God, the old man could handle a spade, just like his old man. My father cut more turf in a day than any other man on Toner's bog. Once I carried him milk in a bottle, caught sloppily with paper. He straightened up to drink it, then fell to right away, nicking and slicing neatly, heaving sods over his shoulder, going down and down for the good turf, digging. The cold smell of potato mould, the squelch and slap of soggy peat, the curt cuts of an edge through living roots awaken in my head. But I've no spade to follow men like them. Between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests. I'll dig with it. What do you think of that? How old was Heaney when he wrote that, I wonder, Lee? Uh, let me just have a look. So he was born in 1939, and that was written in 1966. So what's that, 27? So a few years younger than we are now. And... I don't know. I don't. I like reading it. It's it's a nice poem to read. The rhythm is nice. There's a few kind of rhymes and half rhymes and things like that that make it quite fun to read. And I'm not really sure what the tone is supposed to be. Whether it's meant to be very reverential towards these older people in his life, like the grandfather and the father, or whether it's meant to be read how I read it, maybe a bit more jovially, sort of like jovial nostalgia. Um. But I find the sentiment a little bit pathetic, really. Because <laughs> it's kind of like, oh, yeah, I'm not, I'm digging with my pen because I'm a poet and that's fine and I don't need to... It's fine that I'm um, not doing manual labour. Don't judge me. It's quite defensive. I read that as quite a defensive poem on his part. Does he come from a farming background, do you know? Yeah, I think so, yeah. And then... And, and excuse my ignorance, Lee, but where does he actually come from? Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland, okay. And, and yeah. quite a rural part of Northern Ireland then. Yeah, so he was born in the townland of Tamnarion between Castle Dawson and Toombridge. Excellent pronunciation. In Northern Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Uh, he attended Queen's University and he was inspired to start writing poetry by Ted Hughes. What an interesting link. Okay, I see. Yeah, so I was wondering after hearing your... A poem by Sylvia Plath about blackberry picking, whether he'd actually read that and maybe had something enlivened with him to explore these kind of natural images as well. Yeah, I wonder. I don't know. Did um, I assume, perhaps incorrectly, that he came to London at some point? Maybe they were all in the same circles then, because there isn't a massive age difference. Mm, when was Sylvia Plath born? She was born in 1932. Okay, yeah, so seven years older. But um, Ted Hughes was quite a bit older than Sylvia. Ted Hughes was born in 1930. Okay, yeah, so he's nearly ten years older than 
Heaney, which maybe is quite a lot when you're 27 and then someone's 37. I don't know. Well, maybe it's not. So maybe that, that's why perhaps there's more idolization. Mm, yeah, maybe a kind of mentor relationship, if not personally, at least uh, by through reading the poetry and things. Oh, interesting. I, I believe, having done a little bit of quick research, that um, there's a little bit more to it, Lee. We'll have to dig in and report back to the listeners. Here we are. When Seamus Heaney spoke at Ted Hughes's funeral in Devon on November the 3rd, 1998, he said that no death had been as devastating to poetry as Hughes's death and that no death outside his family had hurt him so, as much. At a memorial really? service at Westminster Abbey half a year later, he remarked that Hugh's coffin at the Devon funeral had reminded him of a boat floating down a river from the Battle of the Somme that Wilfred Owen had once described. Oh my god. So it says that they edited poetry anthologies together in 1982, uh, The Rattle Bag, and 1997, The School Bag. Um, and I think that that was a very kind of meaningful relationship for Seamus Heaney. Do you know anything else? Um, I've just done a quick bit of research and there's an FT article on um, Seamus Heaney and the death of poets. Oh, wow. He's quite into architecture because he's added something else. Hughes was like a gable, a, f- a psychic gable that you could put your back to. Really? <laughs> he was holding up a roof or something. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what to take from that. but uh... That's what I... Yeah, I kind of get that from a lot of Seamus Heaney's poetry. I'm kind of, I don't think I like it that much. It's quite, um, it's sort of simple, but at the same time, it's a bit overwrought and a bit too much for me, I think. And then why is it too much? It's it's the metaphors or what, what is yeah, it? Yeah, it feels unnecessary. I think it feels unnecessarily metaphoric, but that the metaphors are almost a bit obvious. A bit much. It's a bit like sort of describing yeah, somebody much. as a buttress, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the last one that I would like to read, um, I think, is quite uh, beautiful and touching and is, again, a very sad one. And actually, this one I I kind of can relate to, um, not the exact circumstances, but so this one's called Midterm Break. And this was written by Heaney um, when he was attending university and his four-year-old brother was killed in a car crash. And this is about him returning from university to attend the funeral. So, midterm break by Seamus Heaney. I sat all morning in the college sick bay, counting bells knelling classes to a close. At two o'clock, our neighbours drove me home. In the porch, I met my father crying. He had always taken funerals in his stride, and Big Jim Evans saying it was a hard blow. The baby cooed and laughed and rocked the pram. When I came in, and I was embarrassed by old men standing up to shake my hand, and tell me they were sorry for my trouble. Whispers informed strangers I was the eldest, away at school, as my mother held my hand. In hers and coughed out angry, tearless sighs. At ten o'clock the ambulance arrived, with the corpse, danched and bandaged by the nurses. Next morning, I went up into the room. Snowdrops and candles soothed the bedside. I saw him for the first time in six weeks, paler now, wearing a poppy bruise on his left temple. He lay in the four-foot box as in his cot. No gaudy scars. The bumper knocked him clear. A four-foot box, a foot 
for every year. And I think that's a really um, beautiful kind of portrait of funerals and that feeling of being on the edge of adulthood because he's an adult in age, but he's still a child in the context of his family. And I think that's portrayed really nicely through the lines about his relationships with his parents and kind of friends of the family like Big Jim Evans saying it was a hard blow. And that makes me think of funerals that I've been to for family members and the kind of awkwardness of the situation where you're not really an adult, but you're not really a child and you're not the same age as kind of everyone else who's there and you're trying to fit in um, and you've got your own grief, but maybe it's a different kind than them and things like that. So I think he's captured all that really nicely. I, I did enjoy the imagery actually in this of the snowdrops and the the poppy bruise. Do you think that was like poppy in shape? Yeah. But I just think that that was very visual. And maybe that's something I like both about his writing and about Sylvia's. Yeah, I think that's a really nice image, isn't it? Mm. It's much a, it's a more subtle metaphor or use of imagery than in some of the others. A lot of flowers as well. And maybe that's linked yeah, to that's a true. funeral again. And I think, again, there's that feeling of... Um, difference between him and his parents' lifestyle, uh, him being kind of very academic, his parents coming from this sort of countryside farming lifestyle. And that's very explicit in digging with the long descriptions of the father and grandfather digging. And then the kind of very on the nose thing about uh, he's not going to use a spade, he's going to use a pen. Um I think that in midterm, it's a lot more subtle, those tensions, and I find that a lot, lot more interesting. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you very much so. Yeah, I think it was a lot more subtle. Yeah. Would you mind just flagging for me which bits of the poem you thought were particularly subtle, which touched upon his relationship <laughs> with his family? Yeah, so I think the general... So it starts with him in the university. He's in the college sick bay. And his neighbours come to drive him home. So you instantly know that he's someone that's attaining a kind of level of education or academic ambition, uh, which, well, maybe I just know this from having read Digging, but you know that his parents don't have that level of academic um, background. So perhaps it's more like when you read the whole kind of set of the poems, you just begin to appreciate the depth. Perhaps that's more it. But maybe with the idea that the neighbours come and drive him home, that implies that his parents don't live in the city. So he's being driven back to the countryside. And I like this thing about Big Jim Evans. That, that really reminds me of the kind of names that your parents, friends might have. And then you've just got this dynamic where he's returning home and meeting his parents' friends, like Big Jim Evans, and the old men standing up to shake my hand, things like that. Um, and I think that there's there's a definite feeling that he doesn't belong to that kind of culture. It's like he's on he stood on the outside. He's embarrassed. And maybe there's an emphasis uh, on on the old man you know he's, yeah exactly he's youthful he's um at university he's looking to his future and then he, there's this sort of um 
yeah, it's it's perhaps a quite a regressive experience for him. I'm not sure if that describes it well, but but do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, I know. Yeah, exactly. And this whispers informed strangers that I was the eldest. So he doesn't know these people. And I think that's a really strong thing of a funeral, isn't it? You you go to a funeral of someone that's really close family and all these other people come out of the woodwork that they've known. You know, these are not his little brother's friends. These are people who are his parents' friends, mm. maybe his grandparents' friends. Um, so it's a very, it's a weird dynamic there. Mm. And then it says, um, whispers inform strangers, I was the eldest, away at school, as my mother held my hand. So away at school, that instantly implies, you know, he's away, he's doing something different. I think it's almost implied that that's not sort of usual or something. Or do you think um, it could be read as he's away at school, kind of like in a derogatory way? Mm, yeah, it could be, couldn't it? Yeah. Mm. And then, yeah, as my mother held my hand, that infant, that instantly infantilizes him. <laughs> That's like a little child. It's like he's the same age as the brother, which maybe he feels at that moment. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot of... Um, I guess I'm projecting part of my feelings onto this, you know? <laughs> but I find it easier... Maybe that's what I like, is poetry when it's more loose and you can project your feelings onto it. Whereas I feel some of the other ones, like uh, digging and blackberry picking, I feel like they're too prescribed. Mm. Especially digging. I find that quite trite, really. <laughs> yeah. But it, it felt more like a story. Mm. Is that, I don't know, how would you, do you know what I mean? It was less like um, a series of images, a little bit like the funeral. I feel like the funeral was more fragmented, yeah. perhaps. Yeah, that's true. And that, that's kind of what I was thinking when you were reading the Sylvia Plath one. It was a bit like a story and a sequence of images. And there was a lot of kind of extended metaphors, wasn't there? You know, she'd go on these little flights of fancy and use things to describe nature that weren't really natural. Yeah. Whereas he's using natural metaphors to describe nature, which just seems pointless. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in a harsh critical mood. <laughs> yeah, clearly. yeah, I like that. Like, maybe it's because he was uh, quite young at this point. So, so when was he, his work first published? I wonder. Was it at this quite young age? Yeah. So this is his first collection. Okay. And he went on to receive the 1995 Nobel Prize in Literature. But I think he was writing a lot of prose at that point. And I think that um, he did a few other, well, quite a lot of other poetry collections. But this is sort of the most well-known one, really. Let's hear some more plath. <laughs> Let's hear some more plath. Okay, super. So, um, so Lee, the last poem I read to you was Blackberrying, um, and that was written in 1961. Um, I I just like to give you a little bit more of a context of that time in Plath's life. So I think this was quite a sad time for her because she'd miscarried the prior year, and um, okay. but then subsequently this was followed by a period in 1961 of intense productivity, and I think she wrote 22 poems, and she also began uh, writing the Bell Jar, the novel for which she okay. is very famous. Um, so it was an incredibly productive year. But the very sad thing about Sylvia Plath, and this is um, such a shame really because this completely shrouds her work, and it is that a year later, so 
1961 she was 29 and at the age of 30 Plath committed suicide um, mm. so I don't know if you already knew this about her but the sad thing is yeah. that a lot of people really this is one of the few facts they know about Plath and that's why I wanted yeah. to start with the joyous poems and I really want to just uh, continue on that avenue and not really dig too deeply into the sadder aspects of her life yeah one thing I d- and what year was it that she died just quickly so she died in 1963 when she was 30 okay the year before she died um i think she had quite a, an abusive relationship with ted hughes um and mm. we as the general public only relatively recently found that out and then one other thing that comes with the veil of modernity and different methods of practice um, was that um, I think she she had a bout of depression um, 10 years prior to her suicide and she was um, given shock therapy. So now we oh, would consider God. this a completely awful method. And I think that yeah. in her depression before she died, um, she really didn't want to go back to hospital. So it's just interesting to look on her life it might have been a very different life now yeah. because hopefully modern medicine would have given her the structure she needed. And I think um, now it's been found out that she was most likely bipolar. So if she was actually mm. treated for that at the time, that might have been quite helpful. So yeah. so I don't want to dwell on that too much. And I actually want to take you to her much younger time when she was at Smith College um, okay. in, in America, in Massachusetts. And um, the amazing thing was that at the back of this wonderful blue book um, there are 50 early poems which were written in her three or four years preceding 1956 Um, and interestingly talking about your English assignments so she wrote Mm -hmm. these um, for her professor at Smith College in her English class (laughs) okay wow yeah (laughs) Um, that's amazing. Yeah, so that's quite wonderful. And I will resist reading one about bitter strawberries because I think we've dwelled too much on Throot. And <laughs> um, I'm going to move on to Midsummer Mobile. And I think that this is interesting for me, just thinking of who were the contemporaries at the time when she was growing up. And I think okay. that both you and I are quite interested in modern art and architecture. And I just enjoy yeah. the references in this poem and actually thinking that although she died quite a long time ago she's still mm. quite a modern poet yeah so let me read that she's going to mention Le Corbusier or something <laughs> sadly not Le Corbusier but uh... <laughs> Frank Lloyd Wright <laughs> Midsummer Mobile begin by dipping your brush into clear light then syncopate a sky of duffy blue with tilted spars of sloops revolved by white. Gulls in a feathered fugue of wings, outdo. Surat, fleck schooner flanks with sun and set. A tremolo of turquoise quivering in. The tessellated wave, now nimbly let. A tinsel pizzicato on fish fin. Be plucked from caves of dappled amber where... A mermaid, odalisk lolls at her ease, with orange scallops tangled in wet hair, fresh from the mellow palette of Matisse. Suspend this day, so singularly designed, 
like a rare colder mobile in your mind. Mm. Yeah, so it's um, name checking Matisse and Calder. I just thought that was very, very beautiful. And yeah, um, I really, really like it. I just, uh, I, I can imagine the. Again, it took me somewhere else because. Um, so I chose all these poems in a way because they transported me somewhere. And for me, mm. this takes me to the amazing art exhibitions I've walked through where I've seen um, those colder sculptures. It takes me to yeah. looking at Matisse's work um, mm. in the Mediterranean. Uh, it takes me to the Museum of Modern Art. It takes me to the Louisiana Museum in Copenhagen. Mm, yeah. I just really enjoyed sort of just, just in a way, those two end lines to spend this day so singularly designed, like a rare colder mobile in your mind. Uh, that torsion in a way, or this sort of... Yeah, uh, yeah. The, the way of thinking about a memory in a way that you sort of turn mm. it around. Yeah, that's lovely. Lovely way to think about it. It's also rare to hear someone articulate their reaction to art, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and I really liked some of the other phrases she had, like uh, fugue of wings and tremolo of turquoise. That's kind of what we're talking about using um, kind of descriptive words that don't really have anything to do with the the subject matter, like tremolo of turquoise. Yeah, well, it's it, I enjoy, that, it's borrowing words from something else, isn't it? Inserting yeah, it yeah, it's, it's really, really interesting. nice. Mm. Yeah, and you kind of know exactly what she means. Yeah, 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 you do. Yeah, and fugue of wings. I don't really know what fugue means. I know there's this thing called fugue state. I don't either. Which is like where you forget your own identity. Let me look up the definition for you. Okay. Fugue. In music, which I assume this is, it's a contrapunctal composition in which a short melody or phrase, the subject, is introduced by one part and successfully taken up by others and developed by interweaving the parts. Mm. So that be- that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it, with wings? So the beating wings, basically. It does, yeah. Beautiful. That's lovely, yeah. I don't know if you agree, but I think that's quite a mature poem for somebody that's you know at smith college and in her late teens and early 20s yeah it's amazing and perhaps that um would have been a better one to have read in gcse english oh yeah there you go (laughs) shall i read one last seamus heaney poem yes please do that sounds delightful where will this transport me lee well, I don't know. I've never read this before, so this will be my first time reading it. And I've never been to Ireland, which I'm very embarrassed to say. So um... <laughs> I haven't either, oh, so dear. let's try and transport ourselves to Ireland through this. Uh, churning Day, Seamus Heaney. A thick crust, coarse-grained as limestone rough cast, hardened gradually on top of the four crocks that stood large pottery bombs in the small pantry. After the hot brewery of gland, cud and udder, cool, porous earthenware fermented the buttermilk for churning day, when the hopped churn was scoured with plumping kettles and the busy scrubber echoed daintily on the seasoned wood. It stood then, purified, on the flagged kitchen floor. Out came the four crocks, spilled their heavy lip of cream, their white insides, into the sterile churn. The staff, like great whiskey muddler fashioned in deal wood, was plunged in, the lid fitted. My mother took first turn, 
set up rhythms that slugged and thumped for hours. Arms ached, hands blistered. Cheeks and clothes were splattered with flabby milk, where finally gold flecks began to dance. They poured hot water then, sterilised a birchwood bowl, and little corrugated butter spades. Their short stroke quickened suddenly. A yellow curd was waiting, the churned up white, heavy and rich, coagulated sunlight, that they fished dripping in a wide tin strainer, heaped up like gilded gravel in the bowl. The house would stink long after churning day, acrid as a sulphur mine. The empty crocks were arranged along the wall again. The butter in soft printed slabs was piled on pantry shelves. And in the house we moved with gravid ease. Our brains turned crystals full of clean deal churns. The plash and gurgle of the sour-breathed sour milk and the pat and slap of small spades on wet lumps. Oh my god, I'm salivating. How about you? <laughs> yeah, it's lovely, isn't it? It reminds me of something else that I read uh, about Seamus Heaney. That he said that he kind of partially sees his poetry as preserving a kind of way of life, almost like a um, historical... Yeah, yeah, kind of... Yeah, historical tales. Um, which reminds me of this artwork I saw in the Tate last year, actually, that was these Romanian... Um, artist who had uh, encased these like straw bales in uh, tin or lead or something. Mm. Have you seen that one? I haven't. That sounds in intriguing. Yeah, and basically the the I think it's Romanian, and the culture was to kind of make these straw bales in these different shapes for this kind of festival, and that in order to preserve that tradition which was dying, she made this artwork where she quite literally preserved the shapes by coating them in kind of metal. Mm. Um, but it was also kind of more interesting because then you end up with these kind of abstract objects made of metal as opposed to seeing the actual, um, you know, hay versions of them or straw versions of them. So I think that's interesting in relation to this, whereas he's kind of doing a very painstakingly descriptive um piece about his emotions but i did enjoy um, it with the soft yeah, printed well. slabs i did think that he was trying to draw parallels maybe with more modern um mm. things that were happening i don't know it just it felt i i really enjoyed the whole mechanics of it that he was describing the two different yeah types the of large pottery bombs the process yeah. i just thought it was quite wonderful so yeah maybe that is really nice actually it's like um capturing this historical process through a very lyrical and kind of poetic piece, yeah. And the pat he describes that I, because I, because mm. I, I wonder how many, how how much these colloquialisms are still used. I don't often refer to um, the cud and the pat of of mm. my uh, my butter. Yeah, you grew up in the country as well, didn't you? I grew up in the countryside, it, it is true, but, you know, I did it. I've never milked a cow. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. So the blackberry picking is kind of more uh, personally nostalgic for exactly. you than these, like, yeah. But, 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 the, but the eating, uh, the idea of, you know, visualising this, this butter that's being churned sounds wonderful. And, uh, mm. and I'm sort of just now imagining, I, w I think everything's been quite food-relatedly. Have you noticed that? 
We've yeah, had, that's true. We've had like blackberries and fruits and maybe this yeah. is sort of like a nice way that we're sort of trying to shine a bit of delight into people's lives because this is something mm. that actually at the moment we can still enjoy and enjoy, enjoy as yeah, much exactly. of as we want. <laughs> yeah. I can really smell the like farmyard smells from these poems. <laughs> <laughs> that I do like about them. Very agricultural. <laughs> How do you think that you relate to poetry? What's your sort of mood? Yeah, no, well, I agree with you. It's sort of, it has to suit the mood you're in at the moment. So mm. I was feeling very wistful for summer holidays and sort of escaping London because, you know, uh, all of these many people are starting to flock out and uh, there isn't as much sort of space in the the lusciousness and... I'm feeling yeah. that yearning to be uh, to be a little freer. So I think that that's why I enjoyed the escapism through some of mm. Sylvia's poems. Yeah. So that suited my mood this week in week seven of lockdown and yourself. <laughs> yeah, I just think there needs to be something that hits you when you read it the first time, even if you're not really understanding it. I think that's why the Sylvia Plath ones are really good because they've got those really vivid images that just grab you and... Um, let you sort of put something of yourself onto it. But I wonder if we particularly like them because we're quite visual people. So I wonder if we mm. like them because of, particularly because of all the imagery that they bring yeah. up. Yeah, yeah, it is interesting actually because she's talking so much about colour. Like you had lemon, mango, peach, um, which now that I read that back, I read them as three fruit. Uh, yeah, three fruits. But when I read it, when I heard you say it, I was just thinking of the colours, the different shades of yellow. I wasn't thinking of the fruits whatsoever. It's true, it's true. Well, I think it's interesting because she's using, uh, in Southern Sunlines, which you're referencing, she's using the lemon, mango and peach to describe the storybook billets. Mm, and yeah, exactly. then she's using um, the red watermelon sun, which is bringing to mind the sun, but also like the juiciness of the watermelon. Mm. So she's she's... She's teasing us with both meanings, isn't she? Yeah, I think it's really good and really clever and multi-sensory. So that's great. I, I love that you enjoyed her so much. Um, I've, I've done well this week then. Yeah, definitely. I think I'm going to have to get one of her books and read a bit more of that. And Lee, does Sylvia Plath's use of colour inspire you to paint or do something creative? Yeah, definitely. I think I'll do a bit more painting this week. That would be lovely. How about you? Maybe I'll try le painting in lemon, mango and peach. Yeah, I don't know what of that I can bring to my um, carved spoons, but um, I will... Well, they look ma really maybe, good. Maybe some of those bulbous shapes I will keep in mind. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That would be cool. Well, that was great. I really enjoyed hearing about Sylvia Plath. And I enjoyed um, getting that link to Ted Hughes. I'm quite surprised. <laughs> that was the only bit you enjoyed no 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 I enjoyed all of it thank you particularly Great. the uh, those printed slabs of butter aloha bye <laughs>